Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. I am very excited to be speaking with my special guest today, William Tincup, who is well known as an influencer, podcaster, analyst, strategist, writer, speaker, consultant, advisor, investor, and journalist. William is a thought provocateur evaluating what is and questions why. He has studied all aspects of human resources and talent acquisition for over 20 years, including practice and the tech that serves the practice. William is the president and editor-at-large at Recruiting Daily and serves on the board of advisors for 20-plus HR and talent acquisition companies. He graduated from the University of Alabama of Birmingham with a BA in Art History. He has a Master's in American Indian Studies and an MBA and a slew of other certifications, including a Senior Certified Professional from SHRM and a Senior Professional in Human Resources from the HR Certification Institute. Hey, William. Thanks for joining me today. Very excited to have you on the podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. William Tincup. I've uh, been studying HR and recruiting and the technology that drives HR and recruiting for 20 plus years from a couple different vantage points. I'm uh, president and editor at large at Recruiting Daily, which is a media outlet. Uh, We have a sister outlet that's HCM Technology Report. So we kind of cover the full span of sourcing to onboarding, which is recruiting, and then onboarding to outplacements, which is HR. Um, I'm also an advisor to probably 30-plus HR and recruiting technology startups, and, and I'm a venture partner of uh, Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners, which is about a $20 million fund that funds HR and recruiting tech. So that's me. Pretty exciting. I, uh, yeah. I you know, Just to, so our listeners know, you and I sort of crossed paths couple of years back uh, when yep. I was actually doing my own startup in the HR space That's right. and uh, learned a lot about HR in those couple of years that I was there. But I was always really intrigued by just your point of view, sort of what was happening in the HR world. And now, you know, here we are coming out of the pandemic, <laughs> HR obviously being significantly impacted by what is happening. So curious to hear, like, what are you seeing as the impact to HR specifically as we're returning to the office or not at this point. Right. Well, initially in COVID, I'd probably say the first six to nine months, it was the phase of what are we doing to communicate with employees? So on some level, HRs ascended to a, a more of a powerful position. They've always should have had a powerful position, but they ascended into this position because they're the ones that need a glue that held things together while there was so much chaos going on for organizations, you know, I think that kind of tapered off. And I also think that that dovetailed with some of the layoffs, not in HR, but some of the layoffs. And they had to kind of go through that emotional, whenever you do a riff, you lay off a lot of people, there's a toll uh, on you as an HR person. And so I think, I think, you know, they, they're mixed emotions, both in 20, all throughout 20 and in 21, it was, 
trying to figure out, okay, where are we thriving with work? Who's thriving with work? Who's burnt out? How do we deal with that? More discussions in 21 about mental health, which was nice. I think that and dovetailed with uh, discussions around DEI, mm-hmm. which was great. As you sunk into 22, I think that everyone, as we are with COVID, there's an exhaustion, you know, as it relates to COVID. Like if we get on the news and it's just COVID, 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 everyone's tired of that. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum or any other spectrum. It's just everyone's tired. And I don't think that HRs, I don't think they're unique in that way. But they're also tired of essentially trying to figure out how to make work work, meaning 19, December of 19, you know, work was pretty simple. You wish we had remote employees and okay, but, but by and large, people went to a box and, you know, that was work. And so there's a kind of clear demarcation of you commuted to work, you did the job, you went home and home was there and then you didn't, you know, you didn't do as much work, or you didn't do any work, et cetera. So there's like a clear line of personal and professional, whereas COVID was all kind of interlaced and more of a work-life integration as opposed to work-life balance. And now we're in that phase of people want to have more of a separation, whether or not they go to an office or not, that's not the point. It's they want more of a separation so that they can actually have more of a life. So that's where you're seeing some of this stuff that's kind of coming out of popular media in terms of quiet quitting, which is actually just give discretionary effort. You're working, they're doing a job, they're just working as hard as most people would like for them to do. And I think that's, again, it's burnout. There's a tiredness. And it's also um, a reluctance, I think, to go back to kind of a workaholic kind of culture. They want to, they want to have a life. They want to meet people. They want to go drink. They want to go have fun. And uh, that's all ages. That's not a generation thing. That's just everybody. So I think – I like HR. What I love about this, you know, this really, really negative experience in COVID is they've got to flex their muscles in different ways. Because normally HR is uh, all too often it's reactive and it's firefighting. We got a fire, we got a fire over here and we put that fire out. We got a fire over here and we got a fire over here and we got a fire over there. So I like this phase now where, yeah, there's still fires, of course, but they're getting pulled into meetings with ops and finance and more of the sweet suite and the board around skills gaps, internal mobility, retention, culture. Like what is culture? If we don't have an office, what is culture? So they're being, I think they're getting pulled into much more strategic and intellectual conversations, which I, I like. I like for them to be in those conversations because I think they'll fare well there. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is, I don't think anyone has hybrid. I don't think everyone, anyone will ever have hybrid figured out in the sense of if you take the polarity of Tesla, you, everyone has to be in the office or you don't work at Tesla. That's that. To the other end of the spectrum of Airbnb, we don't own any offices. There are no offices. Everyone's 100% remote forever. Okay, so in between those two, North Pole and South Pole, is everything else. We call it hybrid, but really, what does that mean? Every company's got their unique thing that they're trying, and it's a lot of experimentation. We're going to have 
work Wednesdays in the office or, you know, it's all about flexibility, but, you know, be in the office, you know, one day a week, you pick, you know, that type of deal or come into the office once a month. You know, like everyone's trying different things. And I, and I like that. And HR's got their hands, you know, arms deep in that to figure that out, which I, I love. I'll just pause there, but that's that's a lot to consume. Yeah, no, I mean, you said, you've said some really cool um, things. So the first thing is, you know, when you made the comment about, you know, quiet quitting, uh, it's funny, I was talking to someone just yesterday about that, and specifically the comment that you made about, you know, people not working as hard. I often wonder if that's really true. I mean, that's kind of the pushback you get when mm-hmm. you read some of these articles that are out there, that it's just people taking back yep. their time, yep. right? And so is it is it really a matter of people not working harder, not incentivized to do more, or is it really about this expectation of the hustle culture where right. there is no end, right? It's, hey, you've got technology at your fingertips, and so yep. the expectation is, is that you continue continue to work. And, and the pandemic has basically made us realize how valuable our time actually is, yep. right? No, I think the thing is, is uh, we're both old enough to remember a period where on flights there was whatnot Wi-Fi. So on yeah. flights, you read or dream or sleep or disconnect or do nothing or talk to the person next to you. Like, uh, and all of a sudden, Wi-Fi and, and being on a flight, the expectation of your peers was that you're working. You're on a flight. It's a you know, five-hour flight. You're obviously working. So that expectation changed. Um, I still don't work on planes. I didn't, I didn't work on planes before and I don't play work on planes now because I just find it repugnant that, you know, I'm, a, I'm it's hard enough to be on a plane and be away from my family. I'm not going to add other things. Now, if I want to, which I think is the crux of kind of the future work model is going to be around flexibility. It's letting the individual pick where they thrive and how they thrive. And that could change day to day, hour to hour, week to week, et cetera. But instead of the company dictating that, the company backing off of the dictates and saying, where do you thrive? Now, applying that back to my plane situation, if I wanted to work, you know, if I needed, if I really wanted, like I just had an idea, you know, and I wanted to work, my laptop's there. I, I can crank out something, but it's, I get to choose. And I think the sooner that we come to the realization that employees and candidates are in the driver's seat, the better off will be. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the other interesting thing was the comment that you made about um, hybrid and how, you know, we'll never, we'll never figure it out. I'm totally mm-hmm. with you there too, because I think it is, has always been, you know, an evolving idea about how we work and hybrid definitely is different for every single organization because of the makeup. Like that's kind of been my thing is when you look at the makeup of of the people that work in your organization and people come and go, right? I mean, I say that this is true also about culture is that culture isn't a fixed thing. Nope. Because if your workforce changes, your culture is going to change as well. And it's the same thing about hybrid is today it's a three, two model or a two, three or a one, five or whatever model you want to use Tomorrow, if you have a slightly different workforce, that model is going to change because right. the people that are working in that environment are 
are different and they're going to have different needs, right? Which so, is fascinating because it's uh, it's agility. What we're really talking about is nimbleness and agility and the uh, organization's ability to basically follow the employees and say, again, it doesn't matter. It really ultimately doesn't matter. What matters is you enjoying your job and doing your job and thriving at your job. And, and that as in new employees, old employees, et cetera, come and go, this, that, and the other. But figuring out for them, the algebra or solving for letting them solve for, yeah, I, I got a bunch of things I really need to work on this week. I just don't want to go to the office. I, a, I don't want to commute. B, I just don't want to be around other people. I want to put my head down and I want to pound out some stuff. Okay. Why would we force someone that knows that that's what they need to do? That's the output that the company needs from them, furthers the business agenda and force some type of false construct that says, no, no, you got to come into the box. <laughs> and and our, or, the, or the opposite is also true. You can stay remote, but people want to go. I was reading an article the other day about fresh grads. And uh, by and large, they want to go to an office because for the last two and a half years, two years of their life, they've been virtual. They want that experience that, you know, early stage career of going out, going to parties, meeting people, having fun at work, going to ball games. They want that. So, like, you know, it's that flexibility, I think, is is radical flexibility is probably going to become kind of the mantra of HR and people operations. Yeah, it's, it's funny, too, when just as you were saying that last point about, you know, people wanting that. So the people who've been cooped up in their homes for the last two years, I think this is the dilemma, right, is, is that you're coming back into reality, but the reality has changed. And I've talked to so many people who had that perception thinking, oh, you know, the office is going to reopen and, you know, everybody's going to go back and it's going to be right. great. And it lasts for like maybe two or three days, and then yeah. they're like, yeah, "Why am I here?" Yeah, this isn't that great. This isn't, Why am this I isn't here? Great. I, I, I kind of like working in my pajamas. Um, so you know, again, I think the flexibility is that you allow employees to just they solve that, and it's like again, it's it, on a basic level. If you can't trust your employees, why'd you hire them? Why are they there? Like this is kind of, I mean, this kind of goes more a little philosophical, but like if, if you can't trust them with something as basic as where do you thrive, why, why are they employed? Like, you know, like they should be able to think. And again, we're telling them mostly this discussion is centered around knowledge workers. I mean, if you're a bank cashier, you need to go to the bank. Okay. Fine. God, if you, if you work at Walmart, you need to be a cashier. You got to go work at the, at the, at the job. But for knowledge workers, I think again, letting them drive and, and that's not generational or gender or race or geology or geography or any of that stuff. It's just that person should be able to know themselves, understand the outcomes of the work that's being expected of them and then navigate. And if they're having problems navigating, then good. Intercept that as a manager and go, okay, obviously, you know, you, you're struggling with where you thrive. Let's figure it out. Let's talk about it. Why don't you come in the office for a couple of days? Let's just see if that helps or go home and let's see if that helps or, right. you know, like let's do something different and shake it up. That's what managers should be doing is right. optimizing right. performance yeah. rather than kind of creating a box. Again, I call it a false construct of you have to do it this way. 
you don't have to do it anyway. The work just needs to be done. So I'm curious just to kind of switch gears a little bit. So sure. given given sort of where HR has been, obviously, you know, they are the keepers, the creators and keepers, if you will, of policies and standards. I'm looking at, you know, where things are right now. I mean, there's a lot of companies who are trying to figure out, you know, what is their hybrid policy or what is their flexible work policy and kind of all of that stuff. How does HR sort of work with and fit into the corporate real estate realm of the workplace? Well, I wouldn't write in pen. If I were in HR, I wouldn't write in pen. I'd write in pencil because, as you already alluded to, it's going to change. That's a policy that gets updated frequently. So policy-wise, half of the employee population needs guidelines, and half the population is comfortable with ambiguity. And you create policies for everybody. And, and again, I would write that policy in pencil, and I'd write it with a revised date and knowing full well that you'll revise it in a couple months. And so, again, dovetailing with the the learning from your employees, how they thrive, what do they need, how what, what best suits them, you got to put some rules in place because if you don't, then it's chaos. But the rules can't be so constricting that you squeeze out all the fun and where people thrive. Now, from a corporate real estate, which I think is fascinating, Sandra, is that I think you'll see more spaces that'll be more hoteling, like consulting firms did this uh, years ago, where people didn't have offices. If you went to the Deloitte office in, in Auckland, in New Zealand, it was hoteling. Like, it was just areas where you could set up shop for a day, a week, a month, or a year, whatever it was. There's conference rooms that you'd schedule. But it wasn't like what we used to have as cube farms. You know, you got all your baby pictures and all that stuff up. I, I think we'll see less of that. But again, the flexibility, if someone wants that, great. You wanted a potted plant at your, your office, put up your favorite college football team. Like, that's cool. Like, I remember visiting uh, Stack Overflow down in San Antonio one time, and they had taken over, uh, they'd bought a mall, a mall that was in disrepair. And they bought it, and it became their corporate headquarters. And it was interesting because they put like in a skate park and did all kinds of fun stuff with them all. And everyone's office or everyone's everyone's area, they could personalize it any way they wanted. They had a certain amount of money and they basically said, okay, you got, let's say $1,500. What do you, what do you want to do? And it was, there were people with tents. Like they were like, <laughs> like full on four person, six person tents. And then they'd have their desk inside of a tent. Like it was crazy, but it's like allowing the employee to express themselves and do the job. But why are we why are we creating anything that gets in the way of that? From a real estate perspective, I think we'll see smaller footprints. Uh, so instead of the twenty thousand square foot office space, I think those things will come down in size. I'm not worried about the commercial real estate market because I think they'll just turn those things into condos. So whatever whatever is not used in the building, they'll they'll just turn it into apartments and condos, so they'll be fine. We we shouldn't we shouldn't worry about the real estate folks. They're fairly adaptive. But the employees I think will want the flexibility of either hoteling or being able to put up and create kind of a spot for themselves or not. You know, and then yeah. I think we've got to be flexible enough to then kind of adapt to 
how they how they see themselves in the office, if they see themselves in the office at all. Yeah, I think what's interesting is what you said about, you know, just allowing people the flexibility to use the space or not use the space and just kind of adapt accordingly. One of the things that we've started to notice in the data that we collect is this change in time. Uh, you know, think of the way people used to use the office before when there was an expectation for you to be in the office in the first place, right? There's an expectation that you're in the office between nine and five right. or eight to four or whatever the hours are. Right. And right now, even with the return to office mandate, what we're seeing is, yes, there's people coming back at varying levels, but the amount of time that they spend at the office is not the full day like it used to be, right? Okay. And so, again, is how do you fit the office into your work day sure. when, when you need to. And again, some people will want to be there the entire day either because they don't have the space at home or, you know, right. as I said in the past, they're not disciplined enough to, you know, to work independently and prefer sort of the, the vibrancy yeah. of the office versus the person who's like, hey, I've got three meetings today. I'm going to schedule them back to back and do that in the office for three or four hours. And then I'm going to leave and go back to my home office or whatever yeah. the case might be. Right. And so these are all valid requirements going forward from an office perspective of how you need to think about office space where it's not just a box as you said at the beginning it's yeah. it needs to be very fluid and it needs to support that level of fluidity within the organization because not everybody works the well, exact we, same way if we think of the office we if we move our minds over to the office as an ecosystem and the ecosystem is ever changing so there's a fluidity to all ecosystems it's interesting because if you go back to the Industrial Revolution and the way that they had work there, and then you look at World War II and the way that World War II impacted everyone in terms of structure, a lot of command, control, levels, all of this stuff, a lot of it, if not all of it, bled into the office. So if you go back to 2019, there's people, I don't, I say, I wouldn't say we as just you and I, there's people that pine to go back to this area, this point in history that actually wasn't that functional. That's just what they knew. Yeah. And so we're dealing with change and change management. And so you've got leaders by and large that just want to go back to this place that they're familiar with. You come in at eight, you leave at five, your lunch is at one. And I know where you're at. I know you're what you're doing. We can talk. We can meet. We can do these things. And it's what they know. And the unfortunate part of that is that's not necessarily for knowledge workers. That doesn't necessarily fit what we should be focusing on, which is the outcomes and outputs of work as opposed to how work gets done. And I think we've just, I mean, it's a lot of history in there that's baked into our our subconscious and a lot of the leaders' minds that this is the way that work gets done. It's like this is a way that work gets done, and we got <laughs> used to it, but that's not necessarily the way that work should be done. So, yeah, and and I think I think the part that's probably the most mind blowing to me is we've all been in the same environment for the last you know thirty plus months. We've yeah. all experienced. How well, I mean, it's, it was a sink or swim situation. Like yep. you had no choice. That's right. And so you basically figured out how to make it work. It would have been one thing if we were out for, you know, three, four, maybe even six months to yeah. say, okay, it was temporary. Right. right. 30 months is not temporary. Nope. No, <laughs> right? and the air, the air 
can't go back in the bottle. And I think that's the frustration for a lot of leaders, you know, founders, uh, et cetera. I don't think there's a frustration for workers other than having to interact with, with leaders because like take a, you know, a director of human resources or a director of demand generation. We learned through this process that job could be done from anywhere because we did it from anywhere. So now it's a choice, choice by the company and leadership. And it's a choice by the employee. And I think whether or not we're an employer-driven market or a candidate-driven market, scarcity and surplus, I think the employee, we should err on the side of making it work for them, not necessarily for us, the outcomes of work. Like, what are the outcomes of work? What are the things that are the deliverables, if you want to use a consulting term? What is the thing that you're working on that we can look at and see that you're working on? Great. Why do we care about how we got there? Like, yeah, why, exactly. are we, why, why are we in that business? Why were, yeah. why, why were we ever in that business? Yeah. So another thing that I find really interesting, too, is, you know, you hear a lot about the type of market that we're in, specifically you know, it's an employee's market, right? Mm. So the employees are in, in control versus an employer's market where the employer right. is in control. Right. Do you think that that sort of cycle will continue or do you no. think that the line has been drawn and this is going to be it going forward? It's uh, it's and again, it's the difference between a candidate driven market and an employer driven market. Uh, those used to be kind of huge swings where we basically we didn't have enough scarcity and surplus. We didn't have enough candidates or we had too many candidates. The thing that's different now is behavior and expectations. And that's and that's not everyone wants to blame uh, millennials and Gen Z because it's an easy target. But truthfully, I, I'm squarely Gen X. And if someone forced me to go back in the office, I would force to be giving them a resignation letter. So people now are opting out of work. Like I'll just go, I'll go work like four or five different things that fit my life. I'll go do Uber. I'll do, I'll do, uh, you know, DoorDash. I'll go do these things. I can go do uh, multiple things. I'll make the same amount of money or possibly even more, but it'll fit work fits around my life rather than my life fits around work. work. Yeah. That's a key. I think that's a key, a key change that has occurred. Yep. Where again, you're just understanding where is work relative to my life, where it's not your life isn't working, That's which right. is what it used to be, right? That's right. That's right. So just going back to what you were talking about before around like policies and standards and kind of those types of things. I know when we talked earlier, it was kind of like you know you've got this new flexible environment that hmm. really there is no place for policies and standards there. Versus, you know, the role of HR is to put policies and standards in place. Yeah. And it makes me think about, you know, how management deals with it. Because you also hear a lot now with this whole concept of hybrid work coming into into play, where there's a policy that gets put into place, but then mm-hmm. it's up to the manager to decide whether they're going to comply or not. Doesn't that create 100 percent? That's the, fric- that's the friction. <laughs> you know, we could question and probably should question why HR is in the policy business. Right. And and some of that is because of poor behavior or things that have happened in the past. And so you have to kind of draw some lines and give some people some, you know, basically some guidelines of what can and can't be done at work. Okay. Outside of that, why aren't policies, why aren't they drafted by employees? Like, why, why don't we put that in their hands and they drive the policy? 
like what should be this policy? Instead of coming down from the mountaintop like Moses and saying, <laughs> here's our policies, you know, like why why is that? And so I first I want to question just the foundational part of HR is the policy department. Why were they ever the department? Why are they looked at as a department? Why are they even in the business of being in that department? Shouldn't policies come from the employee population of them deciding what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? We can run that through an employment attorney, and they can actually make us understand what is legal and not legal at work. Done. Fair enough. Like that, that actually has a place. Employment law is important. There's a, absolutely a place in handbooks and policies for employment attorneys to then be able to go back and go through that. But I talked to an employment attorney about this just this week, and he said the best handbooks are made where HR drafts it with, you know, with a lot of like, uh, kind of almost like how regulations are done with a government, done in a very public manner. So it's like a Google Doc. And like everyone has inputs and everyone puts in comments. They take all that stuff together. They put it, they put it together. But before publishing it, they give it to an employment attorney and go, is there anything in here that's illegal or, um, that would get us into any types of lawsuits? Cause if you have an employment attorney write your handbook, it's unreadable to the layperson. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they can't write, they shouldn't ever write handbooks. But they should be the last line to make sure that we're within the guidelines of what what is and isn't currently uh, the law of the land. So I, I look at policies in general and think to myself, especially as it relates to employees, the employees should actually drive that and say, again, and, and HR has an important role there by sparking the conversation rather than being the genesis, the alpha and the omega. They, they basically start the conversation, go, should we have a policy about this? And then let employees kind of come in. And if there is overwhelming support of, yes, we need, we need more guardrails around bring your own device or we need more guardrails around, um, being able to, you know, be able to do things on the internet at work, at the office, like being able to, you know, whatever outside of work, like, do we need the policy should be a question that HR asks and gets feedback from their audience, the employees. Once that's all baked, get it to an employment attorney. Make sure that there's nothing illegal in there. Get it back. This is what we agreed upon. Now everybody can sign it. I've done this bid, good gosh, 100 years ago where it wasn't an employee handbook, but we created a what's not cool list. And so we went around to every employee and said, what's not cool? Like, what's not cool? And so, you know, arriving late to a meeting, not being prepared for a meeting, you know, throwing hand grenades in the office, you know, like basically, you know, not my not my problem. So they wrote out the manifesto of what's not cool. We sat around. We went through every one of them. We all agreed. OK, we ratified it. And then everybody signed the document. And it was fascinating because if I were to have sat in a room and tried to create that list, I wouldn't have created half, probably a third of the things that were on the list. I would have created a bunch of extraneous stuff that what did, people didn't care about, and it, it wouldn't have resonated with the audience. So I, I think we have a wonderful opportunity with our employees to actually be collaborative around policies. 
Yeah, I, I like that idea. I think that's a really, really great idea. We did something similar along those lines when uh, they passed the law here in Ontario, you know, not being able to contact your employees <laughs> after hours. Right, just, right. You know, they went out to the employees and asked questions because some of us don't mind. It's kind of like, you know, yeah. If you're working asynchronously or you've got people in different time zones, it's kind of hard to say, okay, yep. it's 5 p.m., yep. no emails need to go out. And so it was interesting to hear the different perspectives in the company and then trying to come to some sort of uh, of middle ground, right? So I think bringing the employees into that is, is really important. Real quick yeah. is the word that, that we're both nibbled on is consent. Yes. It's asking people their permission. So in that scenario about working uh, hours, et cetera, just what would you give us consent to do? So, and again, we, we use the backdrop of flexibility. Somebody that comes in for, does their meetings, then goes home and works, or does, goes out and takes care of their kids, does some other stuff, and then logs back in later on and does some work. Well, that's kind of a false policy because you've now got something that's in the way of flexibility. And so I think I think some of this is just asking employees their consent rather than dictating some type of moral code. Uh, and, and again, I think it's done with the best intentions because people, you know, probably uh, that's where a lot of laws come from is just poor behavior that leads to some type of overreaction. But I think that if, if in doing something like that, you just ask people, you opt in or opt out. Like, you don't want to receive anything from work after 5 p.m.? Done. Not a problem. Cool. Like, okay. And now we know that we've gotten their consent to understand what, what they'll accept. You know, again, if we actually thought how we'd like to be treated and treated our employees the way that we'd like to be treated, most of this would go away. Yeah, I totally I totally agree with that, too. <laughs> we just don't, for whatever reason. It leads nicely into the next question, which is around, you know, employee centricity, right? So just thinking about what does that actually mean for a post-pandemic workforce that doesn't really want to go back to the office? Mm -hmm. How are you employee centric when you don't have that sort of pop, well, if you will, at well, the you're, office? <laughs> well, you're employee centric because you're personalizing it to the employee and you're giving them the ability to then drive the car. And that you couldn't be more employee centric by, by allowing them to drive the car uh, of work. So uh, I think what, where we've historically failed is we thought that the box was our culture and the box was never our culture. The box was just a place where people went. Our culture is how you treat people. That's ultimately how you should be measured and how we are measured is how do you treat people? And if we're treating people at a highly personalized, meeting them where they are and allowing them to do the work that they want to do in the way that they want to do it, you you can't make it more employee centric than that. So I think where we, you know, we struggled because we misdiagnosed culture, mislabeled it uh, is culture is this place that we go to. Culture is not a place. It's an experience. It's it's uh, it's a a relentless pursuit of creating a wonderful experience for all employees and all candidates and all alumni. But, but like for right now, all employees, you can't make it any more centric than building it around them. I think what's interesting about that too is, as you were saying before, you know, if you involve your employees, you know, you're getting their consent in terms of how you're going to be dealing with them. So if you're, 
building policies and, and they're involved in that process, it totally makes sense. And because if sure. you've got, you know, employee centricity, there's sort of the rules of engagement, so to speak, that everybody's on the same page in terms of what they're allowed to do, what they're or let's say the word allowed, but just basically yeah, yeah. there's a there's an understanding, mutual understanding of this is okay, right? You've created a new agrees, social okay. contract. Yeah. Yeah. You've created a new social or a work contract. Contract, right. Yeah. And, and then, it's agreed upon by both parties. Like, okay, right. this is how we work. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of the, the challenge, right, is, is that when you get into, like, compliance, and this kind of goes at all levels in the organization, because one of the things that you tend to see is policies get made, and then it applies to some and not, not to others, which then starts to... Inequities, yeah. Yeah, starts to then have an impact on the culture. And so, you know, that's still part of, again, that's not part of the box. It's part of the, the makeup of what are you doing in the organization? How are you how are you planning to sort of operate and, and creating these policies and procedures and standards and things that everybody has agreed to? But there also has to be that element of integrity that, you know, if you're going to, yeah. If you're going to agree to something, then it's not, a, you know, you know, applies to them, doesn't apply to us kind of thing. It applies across the entire board, which I think is probably what's caused a lot of the issues within the workplace is that you know, certain things are OK for some people and not not for others. And, you know, one of the things, the other things that's been really interesting for me in the last little while is even again, looking at the data, say, well, you know, there's been return to mandates, you know, happening now for the last while specifically right. all eyes are on the month of September and probably going yeah. to October and November. It's like, okay, oh, yeah. are people coming back? Like that's the, that's the billion dollar question is our, you know, is that actually working? And we have the ability to actually see not only like how many people are coming back, but then right down to the space level of yep. what is that distribution? So is it the office occupants that are coming back or is it the workstation occupants that are coming back? That's right. That's and right. Not surprisingly, it's the office occupants that are higher in numbers in terms of the return than right. the workstation occupants. Yep. And yep. what's funny about that is, is that it's those people that are mandating the return back. And it's nice to say, cause you've got your own little private space, yep. you know, but the people who don't have that maybe do prefer the privacy that they have at home where they can control their environment. Right. So. Yeah. And some of it's uh, again, if you, if you just allow, the companies, uh, they, they, they allow their employees that flexibility to then pick. And again, it's not pick and you're done. It's not like you make a decision one time and you're like, okay, this is, it's a fixed, like I'm going to work in the office five days a week from eight to five and that's forever. No. If you create a, a more of a fluid relationship with employees that says, you know, we have workstations, we have workspaces, we, you can work from a home. Where do you do your best work? And down to the day and allowing them the, the, again, we, you know, it's, I think it's, uh, Nordstrom. I have to go back and look, but I think it's Nordstrom's, basically their culture is we trust our employees. Do what's in the customer's best interest. And that follows kind of this old tagline that, that are, are kind of came out of uh, kind of the old West is do right and fear no man. And so it's like, why don't we trust our employees more rather than less? And I think some of it's because we want to control them. 
and uh, that's this uh, kind of a, a false construct of like there is no control. There's no control in personal relationships, and there's no control in professional relationships. There's just no control. So if we give that up and we actually accept, like, okay, people need the freedom to be their best selves, they define that. And, again, dealing with knowledge workers in particular, as it relates to kind of the footprint for an office, some people, they, I mean, I have a dear friend of mine that has four kids under the age of 10, and she's an extrovert. She couldn't wait to go back to the office. <laughs> like, cause, cause A, it was a respite from the madness at home, but also it, she's an extrovert. She wanted to talk to people. She wanted to meet people. She wanted to be around people. So some of this, I think just, you know, personality, the type of work, you know, sometimes, I mean, some of the things I'm seeing actually that are really kind of interesting are around collaboration and around soft skills and soft skill development. Some of the things like both my sons are Gen Z, and so they're very comfortable with devices, not as comfortable conversationally. And so one argument that I've heard, and it's a pretty decent argument, actually, is that you learn soft skills at work, at the office, because you have to interact with people. You got to go out to lunch. You got to go to the water cooler. You got to do this bit. So you're around people. That's how you learn how to interact with people. If you've grown up in a world where that hasn't been emphasized, then that's that could possibly be an argument for that. Another one that I've heard that that's reasonable is occasionally there's a time there's a there's actually something to being in the same room with people doing something creative and collaborative. You know, in the in the uh, advertising space, it's a design charrette. You know, that's the customer wants to repackage and redo this, that, and the other, and everybody gets in the room, and there's 20 people in a room, and it's just papers are flying everywhere. And there's now, can you do that digitally? Yes, of course. But there is an energy to that room that doesn't happen digitally. And that is, there is, that's a fair argument. Now, do you need to do that every day? No. So, and nobody does. So I think that I think it's almost kind of like, again, this is the hardest part for HR and executives is when does this apply? And if it's soft, soft skill development, then talk to people and just say, listen, I know you don't want to be in the office. Like I get in, I know you do your best work at home, but why don't we come to a different arrangement? Why don't you come in every other Friday and be around people so that you develop better soft skills? negotiating and communicating and just it'll help you in the future well i think most most employees especially younger employees that kind of understand the that they're uh, the device oriented i think they'll understand that it's like okay i can see that and you know that that's a different thing way to think of training and development I can I think, see that argument. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. You know, the flip side of that is I, I hear you talk, and I, I totally get it. I, I see that. But, you know, going back to what you were saying about the control, like just thinking about having a conversation with, you know, one of my own kids or even my nieces and nephews that are completely, you know, in the digital world. Oh, yeah. They are not seeing the value of that. And it, and it's kind of like as they grow up, like, I mean, they're still in, in high school and elementary yeah. school. So to them, it's all about the fun aspect of the digital world. Right. And so, again, is it perspective? Is it because that's what we've experienced, that there's a value to sort of that element 100%. of You're interacting? You're absolutely right. 
Because as yes. you get older, I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but I mean, I'm, I'm a, Gen, a Gen Xer too. And it's kind of like, I've noticed that as you get older, you kind of pull back from oh, yeah. interacting oh, yeah. with people. So you're going to end up I, lonely anyways at the end of I the day. I don't go to as many parties as I did in my <laughs> 30s. Check. Got it. You know, I'm not even interested in going to parties. So I get it. But, and, and maybe we've over-indexed in the importance of conversations. Yes. Which is which is a really interesting point uh, and a counterpoint to then say maybe we we're, we're overvaluing soft skills. Yeah. We're not valuing high enough the digital skills that they have innately. Yeah. So again, great great arguments to be made. I think again, this is the hard part for HR and and all the executives in general is this is just the fluidity of this and there is no one answer. In December of nineteen, there was. Yeah. There's I think a the other people that worked in India and yeah. everybody else worked in the box. And we had enough, <laughs> you know, like it was pretty yeah. simple. Very true. Very true. Sorry. I I think, you. No, I was going to say the other, the other piece that I think is interesting too, just as we were talking about like, you know, being in the room. So the, you know, the charades, I've been in a couple of those myself and it's true. There's a certain energy in the room that, that, that happens. But I think what's interesting about that is if you think about what you were saying before about yep. the permissiveness yep. to behave a certain way whether yeah. you're in person or That's online right. That's right. right it's it's the the context of what is expected of you because usually there's one person leading talking right this is what we're trying to do and then it's yes okay we all agree it isn't right. a co-creating experience like a charade situation would be right. where you know that there's an expectation that you're freely and opening openly contributing to this event yep. which can happen online just as well. And I kind of make the parallel to, you know, the argument that we've heard over and over again about, oh, you know, the office is, you know, a requirement for collaboration and innovation. Well, mm. is that really true? Like, again, no. it goes back to the collaboration only happens between nine and five or innovation only happens between nine and five. It's more of the giving people the permission. I read an article actually the other day that kind of spoke to this, where when you give permission to people to sort of create and not sort of be focused on process and policies and just right. be sort of open to solve, to be innovative of how to solve current business problems and come up with ideas. That doesn't require you to be in a place to do that. Right? Right. You just have to have an understanding of what are the challenges and what can I, as a, as a contributor to this organization, bring to the table with yep. ideas that are not going to get slammed, you know, every time I raise my hand. Right. And I think I think some of this is uh, again what's what's wonderful about this whole discussion is every company is going to struggle in much the same way is they're going to try stuff fail try stuff fail try stuff fail and the the ground beneath them will constantly be moving because the employee populations and their expectations behaviors and needs will be changing and either you adapt with those changes. Or you cease to exist. And it, it, it's pretty much that simple. I mean, I remember Walmart. I've told this story before, but Walmart in the 90s uh, went on a kick and said, okay, we need more SKUs. We need more choice. Our consumers need more choice. So if you went down the toothpaste aisle, there was like 600 different toothpastes down there. And what they found after doing that for a couple of years is it was too much choice. Because people would go down the aisle and just freak out, like, ah, do I need wife teeth wiping? Do I do I do? Does it need to be purple? Like, what do I? Ah, you know all this, and they just go grab the thing that they bought before, 
And so the companies are going to have to play with this, like like modeling clay. That's why I said, you know, don't write in pen, write in pencil, because you're going to want to erase some things. Uh, and be okay to fail. I think this is the for all executives, not just HR. Don't have the fear of failure. Try stuff with your employees, with them. And if it works, cool, continue until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, okay, cool. Try to come up with something new or come up with something new that works for them and then go from there. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It's funny. It reminds me also of the, the whole Kodak story. I was doing some research on that last week for a presentation that I'm doing in a, in a couple of weeks and just fascinated by the story there of, you know, the rise and fall of Kodak and mm-hmm. what basically led to their demise. Oh yeah. And they had, there was one line that I read that, you know, they basically failed to adapt a way forward that the leadership didn't value. Right. Right. And so it's right. kind of that thing of, you know, we're not valuing the technology. We're not valuing the new ways that have been around for a long time. We just haven't businesses just haven't adopted it. We saw that coming into the pandemic, who was kind of on that path and who wasn't. Yep. Right. Yep. And here we are, like I said, 30 months later, and we're still having the same conversations. Well, like I think I think the conversations are constant. I think the, I don't think the conversations are going to change. I think the nuanced part of the conversation will change but the conversation itself i think i think that's here to stay how does how the future of work is how do employees want to work and how do we adapt to how they want to work which is going to change and yeah. it's going to continue to change and, yeah. and 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 it should but i do believe in that adapt or die uh kind of mentality like okay you either adapt. That's a choice. Like Kodak had a choice. The board, the executives. It's not like they're dumb people. They were smart. These were smart, really, really intelligent people. They chose not to adapt. Okay. Well, that's the choice. Yeah, and that's the yeah. consequences that you get as a result. That's right. That's what we teach our kids, right? <laughs> Actions and consequences. Yeah. We t- we teach them that relation, the tethering of those two things. So you can choose not to adapt, but it's a choice. And the other thing that's interesting about this, too, is, you know, just thinking about the conversations and sort of the the differences in terms of where people are when you think about adopting new ways of working, just putting a, a, an image, a visual together for this presentation and sort of seeing that, you know, from a real estate perspective, we're still at the beginning, right? Most Most businesses have traditional offices with a ton of floors and furniture and kind of all of that stuff. And now you've got this small percentage of people that are coming to the office because people are behaving differently and corporate real estate and maybe HR is up in arms thinking, Oh my God, what are we going to do? You know, you've heard, Oh, we need to try to figure out how to entice people to come back because it's this thing of bring people back into the box versus Uh hold on. You need to think about real estate a little bit differently and evolve. Right. Yep. You have to evolve your real estate into this new way of working, whereas for the worker, it's a bit of a revolution. Right. It's kind oh, of yeah. like, hey, we're not we're not going back. This is the way forward for us. So figure yep. it out and let us know where you stand and then we'll decide if we're going to remain an employee or not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, again, customers is you and I are customers of, of all kinds of different things. Right. We choose to be customers. Like if you're if you, you choose to go to Target, you choose to go to Walmart. You choose to go to Academy Sports. You choose to go to 
Burger King or Tim Hortons or Starbucks or whatever. Those are choices. You don't have to do those things. Employees are now connecting the dots of I don't have to make that choice. I can make a different choice. And so this is COVID related, but it's also kind of gig economy related as well. Uh, because they're just like, I can make money. Like I can go make money right now. I can just get my car and go turn on an app and go make money. So it isn't about as that as much. It's about what fits my lifestyle and what fits me. And you know, how do, how do I want to work? What do I see myself doing? Like it's all good stuff, but it's, I don't think the chaos, I think the chaos is constant. Like I think, some, I think that a lot of executives want the chaos to be controlled and gone. And I think that that is a failed strategy. I think they need to uh, increase their uh, skills around ambiguity and flexibility and resiliency. And I think if they, you know, it's almost like a lot of executives need to go back to school and learn, you know, apathy if they haven't already learned it, but they have to go back and learn these things because if they don't, they're just, they're choosing not to adapt and the employees will choose not to work with them. Yeah. Um, I, I think what's, what's interesting, it kind of leads into the next question that I have is the elephant in the room. Like how does this new way of working impact productivity? And there's been numerous conversations around that as well. Yep. So when we think of what I like to call the productivity cocktail, which is having autonomy, flexibility, and responsibility, mm-hmm. right, as an individual, as well as accountability, so right. you have to have all of those in order yep. for you to feel like you can actually make decisions and do the right thing. Um, there also needs to be a, a, a need for transparency um, yep. in order to keep things moving in the right direction. So when you think about managing productivity, uh, so, for example, we hear things about like monitoring work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see that in terms of the impact to businesses? Because obviously businesses are very keen on keeping productivity levels up. There's been a right. ton of stuff in in the media about, you know, productivity being down, you know, whether it's true or not, we don't really yeah. know. Like, I mean, it could be just propaganda, but just curious, like what what are your thoughts in that regard as it relates to business, but then also for employees and the future. Because I think that there's there's some element of truth, for lack of a better word, where there needs to be some understanding of how productive an organization is. I think, though, it's the way that the that information is used that yeah. gets the bad rap, right? So I just wanted to hear your, your thoughts on that. I think, I think you know, this, this, danger, this walk said line dangerously close to the media frenzy around quiet quitting. And really all this is about is discretionary effort. It's, it's you're solving for discretionary effort. Um, so how do you solve for discretionary effort? And, um, I think that the, what we're, what we're learning by and large is that employees want to have a life. And, uh, and that's the choice that they're making is that, uh, work doesn't define me. I define the work that I do. And I think that, again, probably a lot of things come into that. But I think if you want to actually, if you really want to enhance productivity on any level, you work with your employees. You don't monitor. 
you work with them, you set goals, and if they don't hit their goals, you talk to them and you try and figure out, like, it's like working with an athlete. You know, like if any professional athlete, you work with an athlete, are they really doing productivity? Pick any sport. Are they really doing productivity? Are they really managing productivity? No. They're setting them up for success, and you're giving them the tools and resources to be successful, so they expect success. When there's not success, then they basically say, it's a coach. How can I help? What do you need? You're in a slump. It's not going well. You're not making your free throws. Whatever the bid is, okay, what, what can we do together? Like, what can I, what can we do? What do you need around you to make you better? This constant monitoring, again, I think is trust and control. It's laden with, I'll just say it as I think it, it's, it's a holdover by and large by white men that want to have control. And they believe that this is this is just an excuse to have control. But we need to manage productivity. No, you need to manage the outcome. How you get to the outcome, <laughs> you can work with the person as as coach great coaches work with athletes. Is they don't monitor their productivity. They monitor the outcome. They continue to look at the outcome and then they assist. And they help them. And it's more of a collaborative process. This idea that you have to monitor why are you monitoring? What is if they're not hitting something, then that becomes a great discussion, a teachable moment, some coaching and some support around them to make sure that they understand that the goals weren't met. And then that, again, you can help them get there. But I believe most of the monitoring that we see uh, that's popular comes down to control and trust issues. So and I, again, I'm going to lay that at the feet of my a white men primarily. <laughs> That's, a, I mean, that's an interesting perspective. I, I said I'm I'm kind of on the fence. Like I, I don't agree with monitoring either because I said it's got a lot of negative connotations. But then, you know, trying to keep an open mind to say, OK, it's, let's call it whatever it is. Let's assume yeah. it's not the word monitoring because I hate that word. But right. um, it's kind of like, you know, is there some valuable information that could come from that that could help an organization if you were to use data like that yeah. in, a, in a positive way yeah. that could help you determine you know, how you might be able to grow your business, you know, yeah. by, by, by using people that have or by engaging people that have the bandwidth or that have the know-how or, you know, certain things that you would learn about people in order to enhance the mutual experience of work. The beauty of that is, okay, you take dominoes. At dominoes, you have to fold a thousand boxes an hour. That's the outcome. And somebody in the organization folds 1,200 boxes an hour. Well, the thing is that monitoring as much as going to Terry or Chad or whomever and saying, how'd you do that? And can you teach other people? Would you, would you, would you do us a favor and everyone else a favor? Just teach them your tricks. That's not monitoring. That's just great coaching. True. So I think, again, it's the outcome, the outcome. that yeah. you work with somebody on and, and you, again, consent, you agree. Because creating an outcome that is an untenable position is, is no good for anybody, an unwinnable war. Like I can't get – I can't literally can't fold a 1,000 boxes in an hour. Okay, I'll never reach that goal. Then why do we have that goal? So that <laughs> becomes a different conversation. Because, I mean, that's just going to lead to me quitting because morale is going to be crazy. I'm always going to feel like I'm a failure. Like, well, why do I have that goal? So I think that there is a place in productivity 
especially in certain jobs where you, because of the environment, you have to. Like my, my dad was worked for a warehouser and so cargated, made boxes. And so there's, there was a lot of machines and the machines interacted with the humans. And so there's some robotics in, involved as well. And so that you had to have productivity so that you understood kind of what the overall flow was and what your part was in that flow. So like in that scenario, productivity is not a bad thing. It's not a bad word. It's understanding the workflow and where you where you participate and your importance in that workflow. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, again, when we treat employees as stupid, then we've set the bar low, so low that they can trip over our expectations. And so I think that we shouldn't set an unreasonable expectation with employees because then the opposite happens. They can't ever reach it. They feel like failures. But, I mean, treating people like they're stupid, I just don't believe that that's a kind of a long-term winning strategy. Just if you hired them, trust them, set them up for success, and expect them to be successful. And when things, uh, again, it's inevitable, you know, failure or disaster. When something goes wrong or sideways, it's a great conversation. Like, okay, let's talk. Let's figure it out. So it, it it's hard, and I think that's what – the reluctance of most leaders and managers is that's hard. It's much easier to look at a spreadsheet and go, <laughs> well, the spreadsheet says red and you're in the red. Red's not good. So get, get any, get any yellow or get in the green or, you know, we're going to have to have a, a discussion. When you're in the red, this is a wonderful, odd, teachable moment. Like, okay, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? Man, my dad's got cancer. I just found out about it, and my mind is just, I'm just elsewhere. I'm just, I'm just, I'm here. I'm trying to kind of keep it all together. I'm barely holding it together, but I'm trying my best. Okay. Okay, cool. All right. Well, you know what? In that that folding of boxes example, like, you know what? Lower the goal. Don't worry about it. Get through this. It's more important. Life's more important. Your father's more important. Lower the goal. Make sure you can hit your goal. So if it's 500, it's 500, but you want to feel good about it. We want you to feel good about it. That's being respectful. That's being understanding. That's having empathy. That's having, you know, again, I call it, I think it's basic, but it's not basic, but it's not basic for a lot of people because they just want to look at a spreadsheet or look at some type of software and it says red, yellow, green, and then red, yellow, green, it signifies something. And then they don't take that opportunity to actually use it as a mechanism to help people. They use it as a, as a mechanism to, as an overlord to beat people. And I just, again, I don't think that that's a winning strategy. Yeah. Those are all very, very valid, uh, valid points. I mean, I've, I've experienced some of those things myself as well, just over the years of working, you know, both going through, you know, personal situations or, you know, having unreachable goals or whatever yep. the case might be. And then, you know, just the way you feel about because these expectations are so high and, oh, yeah. you know, you're you're constantly struggling and then you're like, OK, but I have to do this. And you never get that empathetic mm-hmm. side of your of your your leader or your boss until, you know, you're basically ready to walk. And then, it's, right. OK, let's you know, let's talk about it. Right. So, yeah. It's almost too late. You've already checked out. Yeah. Most people, they've already yeah. checked out. They've already started looking for jobs. They've already checked out because I, I'm in an unwinnable game, you know, in an untenable position. I can't win. 
whenever an employee, any employee, hourly, salary, corporate, whatever, executive, board, if I can't feel like, if I can't win, why play the game? Basic. Yeah. Like, I don't think that this is really that intellectual. Like, that's just basic. Basic. Like, don't put people <laughs> in unwinnable games. <laughs> On that uh, last note, thank you for your time, William. This has been very uh, enlightening. I'm sure our listeners will agree. Thank you again for your time. Any final thoughts you want no, to share? No, this, this has been absolutely wonderful. wouldn't change a thing. Fantastic. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me.